We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I get people to trust me more as a leader? Or what about the idea of increasing voice and choice? Well, if you're a leader of any sort, there must have been some time you've asked yourself that I know I have. Hey, everybody, Dr. Jones here with another episode of Seeing to Lead. But this is a special episode because it's a part two with Rachel Archambault as she talks about the six pillars of trauma-informed practices. Collaboration is so important. We all know that and we all talk about it, but how do we actually make it happen? How do we actually validate people's voice and the choices that they give to us? And more importantly, maybe even most importantly, how do we minimize negative thoughts about people's current situation by acknowledging them instead of just ignoring them or placating them? You're right. It's all through relationships. Trauma happens, and it comes in many different forms based on the individual and how they interpret the event. It's something that we can't define because it's on an individual basis. And the only way we can heal or help prevent that trauma or the severity of that trauma is through relationships. So before we get on to Rachel Archambault and her explaining this in great detail, leaving you strategies and ways to accomplish this with those you serve, just remember especially these two things. Language and actions make a large, often unseen difference in how much a person feels safe or as if they belong. So you should always be asking, who am I harming with this decision or communication before you do it? And second, that validating emotions is the easiest way to avoid causing harm. After all, isn't that one of the most important things We want to do, we might not have the right answer, but as long as our answer doesn't harm others. But Rachel Archambault explains this in much greater detail with strategies and tips for success in this second episode on the six pillars of trauma-informed practices. Here she is on Seeing to Lead. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it worth exploring. More time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students, and the increased engagement that comes along with it. Dedicated time for intervention. Overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share 
that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. It's really just being open, honest, having active listening skills. So I talk a lot about counseling micro skills. So when a student is coming to me talking about something, I don't insert my point of view, especially when we're talking about trauma. One of the ways that I foster relationships is letting them speak. I don't go, oh, well, that happened to me. Oh, you know, it's just a little this. It's allowing them to speak about their feelings. It's validating their emotions. And that is where the trust is built rather than cutting them off, inserting yourself. And children are very egocentric. They want it to be about them and and it is about them. So when you as an adult start talking about how you relate, even with the best intentions, it ends up backfiring because they came to you to talk about them, not about you. Dr. Chris Jones here, and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. I think they would be applicable to if these are provided before trauma, that trauma might not be trauma. What I'm saying is by providing these pillars, the likelihood that you are able to cope with that traumatic event, that you have coping strategies, you you do feel safe, you have trust, you have that care support, you are able to cope with that traumatic event and it might not be traumatic to that person. So even if you take my school, for example, when I meet people off the street, they say that is absolutely traumatic and I want to talk about big T and little t trauma. It's told to me as that is a big T. Basically saying that is a life-threatening experience and everyone who meets me says, yes, that is traumatic. The reality is though, is there's people at school that based on where they proximity to where it actually happened or based on the support that was available to them, whether from their family, from their peers, from the school, what prior experiences of trauma they've had before. This all contributes to whether something is traumatic or not. And then that's also if something is developed into PTSD or not. It's about the support in place based on your experience. Like all these things contribute to whether something might be traumatic. The little t traumas, one of those things that are listed is divorce. And I want to swing back to what we said in the beginning, that trauma is an individual experience. So I totally throw out the theory of big T and little t trauma because I'm saying that this trauma that everyone says I experience is a big T trauma. There are 
several people on that campus that might say, oh, that was a little T because I didn't experience it in the way that you did. Divorce, people automatically put that on a little T, but reality is we don't know that individual's experience with supports. That could be a big T for them. So it's the trauma-informed mindset I want to get across. It is not up to us to decide what is trauma for another person. When we do that, we say, oh, it's just a little bit of divorce or it's just a little bit of a traumatic event. You know, we can't do that. We cannot pass judgment on that because we don't know what pillars were provided before. We don't know what supports they have available now. We don't know the support they're getting after. All of these things contribute to whether something is traumatic to a person. That's fantastic. I, you start talking about big T and little T and then no, throw that out. Yes. Because of the individualized piece. Yeah. I was like, oh, big T, little T. All right, here we go. No, get rid of it. Okay. Yes. But that makes so much sense. The way I was talking about before, how it is individual. What we don't see as trauma could be very traumatizing for other people. What that also does, it kind of leads me to the next pillar where I look at when you talk about somebody finding a peer for support and how some people gravitated towards you and you know, other people gravitated towards other people for whatever reason. Yeah. That whole, that whole mutuality and power imbalance, it speaks to me in the manner that the more we create mutual relationships and get rid of that power of balance, balance out those structures, the more peers are going to find each other for support and the more peer supports are going to be available. Does that sound true or ring true to what you're talking about? Absolutely. And the gist of this pillar is understanding that healing happens with relationships. And you have to have that meaningful sharing of power and decision making. So exactly, uh, these all tie into the, to the other pillars. But specifically for administrators, when we are not asking about the decision making, when decision making seems to come unilaterally, that contributes to possible re-traumatization or trauma, or it just doesn't provide a safe relationship with that person. So you might not get a safe feeling from your employees. You might not have the employees who feel safe with you. So everyone in the organization has a role to play with a trauma-informed approach. And it's the sharing of power that makes such a difference. So just by a principal or an administrator saying like, I want to know all of your thoughts before I make this decision, for a teacher to be considered in that way is just, it contributes such a state of euphoria that they're like, you want to know what I'm asking? And from a, a seeing this in action, when decisions were made unilaterally, with the best of ten intentions, it ended up backfiring in a lot of ways because by not having that decision-making shared, they weren't considering what's going on in the classroom, what's going on here, how are the staff feeling? You have to have that collaboration, not just from what educators think of collaboration, but actual decision-making on the logistics of the school. So I get the whole idea of collaboration and... The next pillar, this blends wonderfully because the next pillar being your empowerment and voice and choice. What does that look like in schools? I think the listeners understand, well, I hope they've heard empowerment a lot and we all know what voice and choice is because we talk about giving students voice and choice. Where me 
personally, I like to talk about the teacher's voice and choice as well, being a teacher-centered principal. But what does that look like in a school environment and how do we foster that as leaders, teachers? How do we get that to happen? So I, I think voice and empowerment can come from uh, staff groups, student groups that I know when I was at the school, I was on the some board for something. I don't even remember the name of it anymore, but it was to take the staff issues anonymously and bring them to the administrators. Hey, we're having a problem with this bathroom or, hey, my kids have not been passing the standards that they need or they're all failing math. Like, what do we do about this? So together we came up, we're going to add another math block. By having just those communities of we, we want to express our concerns as a group to our employers, that made such a difference with empowerment and voice. Choice is so difficult. So at high school, specifically my high school, there would be big feuds about what class is going to be taught next year or who is teaching that class. And because teachers want to have some say in what they're doing, you know, it, and that goes back to the control aspect. And a lot of ed- educators are type A in a way that they're planners. They need to know. And it's also not fair to have over the summer, they plans for fifth grade and then oh, your third grade starting now. So having a choice in what they are going to do adds to that aspect of trust and transparency. Are they being honest with me? When did they know that they were going to switch me to the next level? So it's all things that you didn't think of. It's a, from a principal standpoint. I, when you think of who would I harm or who, what might they think I did by giving this information now? So you always have the two sides of the spectrum, right? The best case scenario and the worst case scenario. So just that example of oh, they switched me last minute to teach third grade versus fifth grade. They could say, this was a last last minute decision. I truly did not know. We had an emergency. We had someone quit. We had to put you here because I know you could do it. Then you have the other side of you knew this since last year and you chose to tell me now you are not prepared. So that's the transparency and trust tying into choice. You have to give them a choice. And whether that's two choices in front of them that one of them must be picked it's still a choice on their end. That's, you know, the whole idea of what you just said. What might they, what might we be communicating whenever we communicate something by when we deliver it? And what that message comes across as where, you know, maybe there is something about a disorganized piece that plays into it where if I had the information earlier and I didn't give it till later, or maybe I was hoping for a better outcome, or Maybe I didn't want to tell the person for whatever reason. You're so right about that speaks volumes. No matter what I, why I did it, it doesn't matter because the narrative is built through lack of trust based on when I give it. Right. So if there was already an established pillar of trust with that administrator, maybe they would say, Oh, this is the best case scenario. You know, they just didn't know someone quit. I had to cover this and that, that's it. But if there is a lack of trust, it's going to be on that deficit part. It's they knew and they chose to hide this from me. So all of these contribute to having non-work environments, a healthy work environment, a healthy conversation between administrators, staff, students, and throughout the whole district. 
And I saw what you did there with that proactive piece. If their trust is already built, it's yeah. easier. But if you don't have it, it is a long road back to try and build it if you're doing things like that. What's that look like for teachers in classrooms, building that trust pillar with students with a consistent, transparent message? So one example that I think of is having open and honest conversations. I see all the time on social media and so, you know, students would ask me all the time what my age was and whatever. And I'd give them like creative ways, but I really don't care about expressing what my age was. But what I understood and being a teenager somewhat recently, no, I'm just, but I took that as an aspect of distrust. Why won't they be transparent? Like it's, I'm not going to try to search them or something like that. It was just one thing that I'm like, why won't they tell us this? That contributed. And it doesn't have to be an age thing. It could be any other question that you are not answering in a way that, especially with a teenager, they feel distrustful of that. It could be with a, an elementary school student. When you are saying, I don't want to talk about that, or you could find a way of discussing things, hiding, you know, not hiding things, but if there are certain things you can't talk about, there is a way of approaching Trust is very easily broken, especially for students. So I would think about all the time when you are the person that stands up in the front of the classroom and say, Oh, come on. You can trust me. Just tell me what's going on in your life. Or when you start trying to figure out what trauma they've experienced or Hey, I've noticed your behavior is different. Tell me what's going on. I promise everything. Like I'm not going to tell anyone, but then it's a, a something that you absolutely need to notify, whether it's the school psychologist, the social worker. And then the student comes back to you and says, are you kidding? Like that, that I told you, you couldn't tell anyone. You've broken that trust. So there are a lot of things that a teacher could do, but it's really just being open, honest, having active listening skills. So I talk a lot about counseling micro skills. So when a student is coming to me talking about something, I don't insert my point of view, especially when we're talking about trauma. One of the ways that I foster relationships is letting them speak. I don't go, oh, well, that happened to me. Oh, it, you know, it's just a little this. It's allowing them to speak about their feelings. It's validating their emotions. And that is where the trust is built rather than cutting them off, inserting yourself. And children are very egocentric. It, they want it to be about them and it is about them. So when you as an adult start talking about how you relate, even with the best intentions, it ends up backfiring. Because they came to you to talk about them, not about you. So that is one way across the board with students that I have found to be helpful that not inserting myself unless they ask, have you ever gone through something like that? Then I'd be like, yeah, I have gone through something very similar or that's your comfort level, whether you want to go into it and it's developmental level and all these things to consider. But those are just some of the ways that I have found as an educator and as a provider that builds trust and choice and the choice of them coming to me and choosing me as their safe person in some ways. And I would never assume that I am someone's safe person. It's when they tell me you are my safe person. That's fantastic. And I really like how you put active listening skills into that whole piece because the idea, you know, it's so tempting or it used to be so tempting for me until it was drilled into my head, but to never say, oh, I understand, because I don't. And, you know, to say that to try and make somebody feel better, 
Yes, like you said, with the best intention, but it's it goes incredibly wrong in a ride. Well, that's another topic Go, I talk about constantly is toxic positivity. And I can't tell you how many things were said to me immediately after the trauma in order to make me feel better. But what I've realized, it is a way of the other person trying to comfort and they don't know what they should say. And the validating the emotions is the easiest way to avoid causing harm. So one example of something that I heard constantly was, you know, you were meant to stay or, you know, there's a reason that you're still here. And I would lash out completely dysregulate saying, so this was purposeful, like they deserved it or something like that. So when you talk to a teenager about that and use these toxic positivity phrases, they, the, they are said with the best intentions to comfort. But when we actually think of what we are saying, you say, oh, who would this harm? Who would this, who would feel bad about this? Or does that actually make sense? Like, so that's something that I'm constantly considering. So when someone is grieving, when someone is going through something hard, especially a student, I don't say, oh, get over it. It'll be okay. It'll be okay is one that I hear all the time. There are so many things that won't be okay. And that is totally valid. And I think as a culture, we are constantly worried about people being happy and we're not comfortable with like sad or angry or anything like that. But the reality is there are many things to be sad or angry about. So just validating, especially a high school student saying, you're right, that is terrible. They go, yeah, it is terrible. And that's, I think, the disconnect with uh, educators and parents sometimes is that they say, oh, you know, it's no big deal. It'll be fine. As a way to comfort, it's with best intentions. But when you actually think of what they're saying and just say, yeah, that is really not a great situation. I'm sorry to hear that. And you don't put in, oh, well, I went through something way worse and I'm fine. That happens all the time. When you just validate emotions and do those counseling mini skills, that opens up every single pillar of trauma-informed care. It allows them to center themselves. And you talk about teacher center. <laughs> you know, it, it all ties in to having the person lead, having the person that we are speaking with lead and not us. It's an interesting perspective, having the person lead. Of course, that's why they came to speak with us. They came to speak with us. They didn't come to have us speak to them. So it's all, and you know, it also makes me think what you're saying is that we all need just to take a step back and slow conversations down because Oftentimes, and this is the whole active listening piece, we're waiting to speak. We're not listening. And we're waiting to just keep that conversation going because we're, you know, we're uncomfortable with silence. It's a little awkward. And so we try to fill that space. And oftentimes we end up doing harm by trying to fill that space. Yeah, we do. And people, I think something I do in presentations is I ask providers to evaluate, have I caused harm? And a lot of people, because we go into education to help people, we go to be a service provider because we like helping people. So to be able to reflect on have I caused harm, a lot of people won't be able to say yes, whether they can think of a specific example or not. But that's the final step of the reflection that I do. It's just like, hey, have I, how does the student feel safe with me? And if you say yes, automatically, like you, you should be saying no, you should say like, no. What can I do to make it a safer environment? 
how can I make this specific student feel safe or what do they need? And that's when you can ask the student like, hey, you know, I notice you're a bit disorganized when you're in here. What can I do to make this room feel a bit safer for you? Just asking those questions. And as an administrator, same thing, same thing to your staff members. How can I make this more supportive for you? How can I make this more environment? this environment more supported for you. Supporting your teachers and students seems to be a struggle. They just don't seem to be engaged. You wish they would take more responsibility for their learning and culture of the building, but they just don't seem to be empowered enough to do it. So my question is, have you checked out the book Seeing to Lead yet? It's all about creating a true educational experience where learning, growth, leadership, and community take center stage. Full of strategies and resources, Seeing to Lead is about attaining that goal by employing a model that supports, engages, and empowers all individuals to become leaders themselves. Pick up a copy today at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com. Remember, you don't become a leader and then decide you need to support and recognize others more than yourself. It is the moment you realize it's about supporting and recognizing others that you become a leader. Seeingtolead.com. You know, when when you're talking about supportive environments and safe environments, especially psychologically, I can't help but think of your last pillar, uh, pillar six, and the amount of struggles that so many people, school systems, any system is dealing with right now around that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how we can help foster that pillar or make it better in our classrooms and schools? Sure. So the last pillar is cultural, historical, and gender issues. So one of the things uh, at my school specifically, we had a very high population of transgender children. And we know the research with transgender children that they are, I think, seven times more likely to harm themselves, or complete suicide. So by knowing that, you should automatically be saying when you are working with a student that is transgender, how can I reduce the harm that I am causing? How can I reduce the risk? And that is language changes, whether that's using the pronouns that they are telling you to use, being a safe space for them. Again, all of the pillars here, are we providing empowerment, voice and choice for this student? Are we putting them at the back of the room because we don't feel comfortable with them? You know. These are all things to consider. Am I causing harm to this population? From a cultural perspective or historical perspective, we have one of the big debates after what happened at my school was we had a ton of school resource officers like deployed to the school. So we had like 200 cops just there at all times after the fact. And we have, uh, we had a black student union. In order to have empowerment, voice, and choice, right? That student union was saying, this makes us feel less safe. We feel like we are going to, you know, based on what's happening in the news, I feel like I could be harmed at any point. But then you have the white parents who are saying, I feel better with my kids here with the huge police presence. So it already showed that there was a preference for one population versus the other, even though they're saying we don't feel safe. We just went through something very unsafe and we feel unsafer. So these are all things to consider when you have 
students in front of you. You have staff in front of you who are of a different culture, different historical background, different gender uh, than you. You should always be asking yourself, who am I harming with this decision? And that is what should di- like dictate what the decision is moving forward. Yeah, and, and that's so difficult, right? And, you know, especially you just really should light on it. And that's why I'm enjoying talking to you so much is because the idea that just by not listening to the Black Student Union or listening to their concerns or showing some way that they did, whether it be a collaboration or a compromise or anything like that, they're putting that population at risk because they're showing preference over them. Which then, I mean, I, we keep going back to it, but you know, that's the safety pillar. That's the, your power dynamic that you're looking at, your trust, your transparency, all of those. I'll give you another example of uh, the cultural and historical. And this was one that was like very difficult for me that I had one student who was black and he suffered so much during this event. And all I wanted to do was help, but I'm a young white woman and his mom did not want to take him to therapy. And she finally, you know, reached out to me for help and was saying, can you find a therapist for me? I said, I'd be happy to do that. Just I'll look around for you. I'll take this weight off you. I will find someone. So I did all this research like on a Saturday. I was like, I have an appointment for you on Monday. Like we've got all this stuff. And then she responded to me. She said, I took him to church to talk with, uh, you know, whoever, the pastor, whoever. And my initial response was, that's not enough. That's not what we were talking about. I have to take that culture, that religion into account and say, that is what they are comfortable with. That is what they are choosing. And I have to be respectful of that decision. I can provide support in any way, but that is just as valid. So I had to really check myself and say, am I centering myself into what the decisions being made are? Am I looking down on what the decision is? And those answers were yes, as I felt it wasn't enough. And then I checked myself. I said, you know what? This is what this culture, what this family is saying they are going to do. And if they need my assistance in any other way, I'd be happy to. But that was something that I really had to reflect on and say, am I using my privilege, my understanding, my culture to look down? And it, and the answer was yes. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's such a powerful example because that's an example that we all run into almost every day with different scenarios that we have where sometimes we think we know what's best, whether we're new, whether we're veteran. Because we think that and we don't take into the into account the other cultures. So that's a really powerful example. While I'm thanking you, I just want to thank you for going over the six pillars because one, I think they're incredibly important. But two, for you and your transparency and vulnerability in speaking about such a, because it was so traumatic. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's just... Really, really touching that you're so honest about it and open about it. We are getting to the end of the podcast. So if we switch gears here, I ask two questions of every guest that comes on. And the first one is, if you were not in education, if you were not an educator, who, not what would you be? That is a deep question. 
I can't tell you that you're the first person to ever say that. <laughs> so I think this, think about this a lot recently. And some one of the things that I talk about a lot, and especially in the speech field, is we use our profession as an identity. And I know that's very similar in education. And I try to get away from that completely. When I describe who I am, I don't say, oh, I'm a speech pathologist. Like, that's my job. That's not who I am. I'm not like gung-ho about it. I, it's just my job. I think that who I am without speech pathology is I am a dog mom. I'm a sister. I'm a really good friend. I'm a good listener, a great listener. <laughs> I love to listen. I love learning. I hope to go back for my doctorate, not really in speech. I'd like to do research on trauma. Um, but it's because I love learning about trauma. I love learning in general. So I think that is who I am as uh, a continuous learner. Awesome. See, that's a great answer. Thank you. The, the last one is what's the most, I mean, you've talked a lot about trauma-informed instruction and the six pillars, and I think people are going to get a lot out of this. But what's the most important piece of advice you would give to leaders as they work to better support, engage, and empower those they serve? I think you need to be constantly asking questions. I know that it is a, especially in administration and leadership, it's a big jump. It's a, it's a promotion in a lot of jobs, you know, and it's something to be celebrated for sure. But I think you also need to put yourself on the same level as who you are working with in order to foster these relationships. Make sure that you have a trauma-informed workplace, uh, that you are trauma-informed. And by doing this, your relationships will improve. And the relationships of those you work with and those who they work with, everything will be better off better relationships. So I think continue to ask questions, continue to put yourself in their shoes. But don't assume, keep talking to them because the reality is they're going to have different opinions and different suggestions than what you might come up with. Excellent. Well, you know, Rachel, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. You've said some fantastic things. My my pen was flying on my notebook over here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to to listen back to this for all these things that that you've offered us. And I imagine the leaders are going to, the listeners are going to feel the same way. If somebody wants to reach out to you, because you've been so very open, you were referred to me by someone else and we spoke and did it off and decided to do this recording. What's the best way for somebody to get in touch with you? Sure. So on Instagram, I'm known as ptsd.slp. Uh, that is my main account. And I respond to messages very often. I'm on social media all the time because of that. On Facebook, I also have the page linked to my Instagram. If you don't have Instagram, um, it's also under the same name, PTSD SLP. And shortly, I will be publishing uh, my official website is PTSD SLP. Uh, it says under construction right now. So it's PTSDSLP.com. Feel free to message me on either Instagram, Facebook. I can also put my email in the show notes and uh, feel free to message me on any of these things. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, if you have a, a situation that you want to talk out with someone, I'd be more than happy to do that. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing all those. I'll definitely put all those in the show notes. And um, again, 
Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Hey, thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you would like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast today, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Also, one last thing. Have you had a chance to pick up my latest five-star rated book yet? Grab your copy of Seeing to Lead anywhere you buy books or at seeingtolead.com. That's S-E-E-I-N-G-T-O-L-E-A-D.com, where you can learn more and continue to improve. Now go have a successful week. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E.